Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Cyrus Monk, who is a professional cyclist and cycling coach, Dr. Jason Boyton, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach, and then there's me, Damien Drews, a professional cycling coach. And to get straight into it, I'm going to hand it over to Cyrus to go over what we're covering today. This is the first episode we're recording for this year. There's a few that will have come out uh, on your podcast feeds that we recorded last year. Uh, During this episode, we're going to discuss some practical things that have been going on. So one of those is the national championships, which took place on the weekend preceding this recording. Then Jason will discuss some thoughts he's been having on FTP versus critical power. And then we'll chat with Damien about a question he's been pondering on the role of a coach in an athlete's success. It's been a little break for all of us and it's been an even longer break for me because I had a bit of time away from the bike and away from the podcast. I lost my dad towards the end of last year to a heart attack while he was out riding. So... Uh, that was obviously a difficult time for me and a difficult time for everyone that knew him as well. And it's something that I've been working with since then to sort of work out what happened there and how to prevent it happening to myself and others in future. And part of that right from the top, uh, also I've been working with the, the Baker Institute in Melbourne and They do a lot of research into sudden cardiac death in both athletes and the general population. So a little plug for them. If you're interested, you can follow the link in the show notes and look at how you can either contribute to research there or contribute to helping fund them because they are doing a lot of good work into cardiac health in athletes in particular and also the general population. I'm jumping in here after we recorded the episode to express Jason and my condolences to Cyrus and his family. We are really sorry for your loss. And also a gentle reminder that there is a link to donate to the Baker Institute in the show notes. Now back to the show and let's check in with Jason. Uh, just had that break over the time. I was, you know, I was actually getting really hard to do the editing on the podcast. Uh, so it was nice to have the, the break. Uh, I was actually finding myself reading papers and working on some other things. I've been working on a talk test for some of my athletes so I can get an aerobic test, aerobic threshold with them, uh, basically anywhere without a met cart and develop the strength training plan for my athletes. So I just got right reading a lot and doing a lot of stuff in spreadsheets and then um, I got to the point, I was like, oh man, I got to do editing on this, on some of these episodes here. And I was just like, oh, yeah. So, but I knew things yeah. were going on with Damien as well. So I was like, I didn't feel too bad. Damien, you've had a bit going on? Uh, moved countries. Yep. So moved from Denmark to Thailand. Yep. Which has been a base uh, on and off for the last 10 years. So not such a shock to the system, but definitely going from the middle of winter to super hot has taken its toll i need to do some heat acclimatization acclimation beforehand i didn't do anything 
didn't get the steam in the shower or anything going. <laughs> Speaking of the heat, uh, and a topic that we've talked about on this po- on the podcast before is we had a group session failure today. <laughs> I went out with two of my athletes to do intervals this morning. We were supposed to do four by six minutes, but we made it to three. <laughs> and that was it. On the third one, it was like, uh, one of my athletes is flying right now. And he's like, I lost 60 watts on that. I was like, yeah, I'm down about 50 or 40 as well. <laughs> um, so I was like, yeah, something going on here. But like, it's a combination of things, right? Like there's that could be going on, uh, you know, ask everybody how they're, you know, it was obviously hot, but it doesn't seem too hot, but like it must've been hot enough. And, but also like once it gets hot in Perth here, a lot of people sleep with the windows open or don't have the air con all day. And so that just kind of takes its toll during, during the day, if you're not careful. Um, and you know, the irony being that I kind of, a uh, um, not advocate, but I wouldn't see anything wrong with doing your intervals in the heat. And then all of a sudden it just gets, gets kind of sprung on you and like, yeah, I think we're just going to call it. But I think there's a different, I had to, I had to r- figure out what's the rationale here. How, how, why am I bailing on this with my set, with my athletes? Um, when I'm sitting in the middle of it and wh- why would I put someone through a, a high intensity session with, with heat? And then well, because if we weren't really ready for it, I don't think we weren't, did not, we were not prepared for a hot session as opposed to like, if you're mentally repa- prepared for doing eight sessions of hot hit over the course of four weeks, you kind of prepared for it. So that's my rationalization. I don't know if it's great or not, but, um, yeah, well, speaking of hot sessions, uh, the, the we're recording this three days after the national championships, which renowned for just always seeming to be on the hottest day Ballarat can put on the the Sunday of the national championships which is the elite men's and women's road race I took part in the men's this year and managed to finish in 12th place which was my highest result ever but still a, a hell of a long way off the pace of the winner Luke Plapp who definitely was handling the heat pretty well I think it was around 34 degrees but Nothing too crazy, but it was uh, enough to uh, definitely make sure that each rider had to have their hydration and nutrition pretty sorted to be able to deal with that. And obviously, if you're coming straight from Europe, which a few of the pros were um, in sort of a matter of weeks they'd been in Australia, then they seemed to struggle quite a lot with that change. But uh, for something for the listeners, I know a lot of people would have probably watched that race and... I know a lot of people watch that kind of thing and are used to seeing some numbers pop up on the screen that the athletes are doing. And this race obviously doesn't have Val on there covering it with the little thingamabobs on the back of the saddle. So fortunately, I've got some numbers here from my race, which I can go through. And yeah, it's a little bit scary for me looking at that. This when I finished around six minutes down and sort of looking at the the numbers I had to do to achieve that. Granted, I definitely didn't have the preparation I would have liked for that kind of race and to to be winning at that level. But, um, yeah, these, these numbers are still something that I would be happy with on most days and it was still a long way off Flappy's pace that he was setting on the final laps. But 
basically for some context, the race is 184Ks long. There's a two-kilometer climb each lap at the start of the circuit and then sort of rolling downhill for the rest. But there's quite a lot of elevation gain. So in that 184 kilometers, there's almost 3,000 meters of elevation. So it's definitely a power-to-weight contest to some extent in there. And you, you do see some bigger riders get around, but you definitely have to be able to to climb well enough to get up that hill each lap. So my numbers for that this year, the race for me took four hours, 58 minutes. So one of the slower races, but out of the 100-odd starters, I think there was 21 finishes. So the yeah, I think a lot of people watch it on TV and think, oh, it's so slow this year. Why are people getting dropped but aren't just factoring in the nature of the racing, just the attacking and then stopping and then attacking and stopping, which during a race makes the overall pace a lot slower but it's going to be a lot more taxing on each of the riders. So I think the the thing to be looking at for that kind of effort or race where it's the stop-start is you focus more on normalized power when we're looking at that rather than the average power. So the average for the 4 hours and 58 minutes for me was 270 watts and that's at 69 kilos on race day and the normalized power was 336 so it's quite considerably higher for for that kind of effort where you're climbing and then freewheeling and then also following attacks throughout the day but for me at my threshold on race day was 365 watts so that generated an intensity factor of 0.92 which if you can do a that for five hours, you you generally know about it by the end. So I was fairly cooked by the end of that race. <laughs> and that was 421 TSS, which is the biggest day for me for the last 12 months for sure. And, yeah, that's that's sort of characteristic of a championship race where you're racing from early on in the race. Uh, it's full on and there's... There's not really any period where you're just rolling along and and chilling out, chatting to people. That being said, I did have a, ch- a chance to chat to Luke Platt during the race and invite him onto the podcast, and he did accept the invitation. <laughs> but I, I mentioned to my co-hosts a little earlier that uh, he accepted the invitation during the race, and since then we've got nothing back from him. So I think he's been pretty inundated with messages in the last few days since his win. So... Yeah, it was uh, certainly a big day out uh, for me and that was not even being in contention at the finish. I think I was out about four laps to go from the front group and then obviously chasing with everything I had but wasn't able to get back in contact there. Did you guys have any uh, things you noticed about the race or about the data from skimming over it? Um. No, <laughs> no. I mean, watching it was was kind of fun. Watching with uh, with the basically the solo break that Jimmy went on, and then uh, when Luke caught up to him, I was like, "Oh man!" I was cheering for Jimmy, you know, because he'd been on the show before. Yeah. Um, and it's like, "Come on, Jimmy!" Yeah. And um, yeah. Then as soon as you start hearing the stats for Luke, I was like, "Oh, this is." Yeah, it's probably a little bit more his course. Yeah, 
he he is an absolute monster. We uh well both of them are monsters. We did contact Jimmy for his data because I thought it would be good to do a comparison and Jimmy obliged and sent us through all that he had, which was a grand total of the speed from his garment because Jimmy was doing the race with no power meter and no heart rate monitor. So that's a little note for everyone that you don't need the data in order to perform. He finished second on the day and that was completely by feel. Um, so he, he is one that if you listen to our podcast that we did with Jimmy is definitely one to use the numbers in training and and make use of the data when he wants to. But in this instance, he had the Garmin on battery save mode, didn't look at it for the whole race. Obviously, you get told how many laps there are to go. So this is completely by feel and it, did work out pretty well for him in the end because I think he got caught by Pipey with about 8K to go. And yeah, apart from that, no one else was anywhere near him. Cyrus, you need to talk to your mate. Talk to my mate. <laughs> better better data. Ah, uh, yeah, practices. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do need to uh, get him get him to to use that even just for the podcast so we've got something to analyze. We'll have to um, follow up with Pipey and get his numbers when we look at them. But yeah, I think... The the other noticeable thing from that, which other riders would have definitely uh, definitely worked out during the race, was the second lap for me up the climb. I had to do 473 watts for a five-minute period during that to follow Rowan Dennis, who just decided after 20 minutes of the race that he was just going to do an all-out effort up the climb. Um, so... And that, that, as uh, you guys would be able to see, is my third best five minutes ever. And that's during the race, 20 minutes into a five-hour race. So that kind of thing is definitely can be scary for other competitors when you're, if you are looking down at the numbers, which I wasn't in that instance, but I obviously knew that I was going pretty crazy hard up this climb this early into the race, but the other important thing to note is Rowan Dennis pulled out after about nine laps. So that was his uh, job to just make it as hard as he could, I think, for Chris Harper and then get out of there. But I think a lot of riders sort of get their confidence whacked a bit when they're going that deep or um, getting gapped early in the race. But often there's other things going on and it's uh, important to to remember that there's still a lot of racing left to go and you don't have to be hitting those numbers every single lap of the race in order to get around. I want to take it slightly off topic for a second because something like Rowan Dennis going out on the second lap, um, it's because one of these things of when you have a race like this where anybody can join in. Um, I know yep. in the last 2021, they started actually making it a bit harder to be able to get an entry into the national race. Um, but yeah. what do you what do you think about this these type of races where there are lots of types of levels of riders. Um, do the world tour guys go out and try and prove themselves early and make it hard on purpose to filter the group from the start? Is that that part of what he was doing in that second lap? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of it is uh, Rowan being Rowan. So if anyone followed Rowan Dennis's <laughs> career, he, he does do some some interesting things throughout that like he's infamously pulled out of the, the Tour de France halfway through a stage um, before the time trial the next day which everyone was expecting him to win so and I think he started that uh, the national championship road race that was his sixth 
uh, time starting the race and he hasn't finished any of them. So I don't think he, it's because he's, it's definitely not because he's incapable of finishing. I'm sure he's capable of even winning, but it's whether his goal when he's starting is even to contest for the win or it's to help out a teammate. So we had Chris Harper there, who's obviously one of the best climbers in Australia now. And for Chris to win, he needs it to be a hard enough race that uh, it's quite selective and there's not many left at the finish. So Rowan succeeded in doing that because there was only 20 finishes. Um, so, and it certainly, uh, certainly stopped a lot of the lesser known riders even going for the break. Like those riders that um, are from either the smaller NRS teams or yeah, just complete amateur riders who have still been able to enter uh, Cycling Australia have sort of upped their restrictions on who can actually enter that. But um, yeah, you will still get some riders in there, which I like that the fact that anyone can enter that race because Brendan Johnston, for example, isn't in a big NRS team. Um, and probably if he was, if this was his first time entering, he wouldn't be allowed to enter the race on the Cycling Australia guidelines, but he came third and he's certainly good enough to be in there. So I think part of it is trying to get rid of all those guys early on and then part of it is trying to help teammates and then part of it is also just trying to show off how good you are for for that period of, of an effort. The final thing I want to talk about is a comparison with the senior or elite men and then the U23s, which you won. Yep. Um, how the power kind of compares between the two? Yeah. So the interesting thing about the year that I won was it was half the distance of the elite men's. It was shortened even from the under 23s because the, there was fire danger and it was 40 something degree day. Um, so it was only a 92 kilometer race. Uh, so I think nine laps and the elite men's is 18. The power, I did look at that for comparison. So the normalized power that I did for the under 23 race was also 330 watts. So about the same normalized power. The average power was a little bit higher because I had spent, I attribute that to spending the last two and a half laps solo. So the average power is going to be higher because I'm pedaling more on the downhills and the flats in between. Whereas this race on the weekend, I'd spent more time in the wheels on that period. But I think even if you compared now the, and it's something that's the same, I think, in Europe in the under 23 in comparison to elite, the actual power output doesn't change that much uh, across the two, the two discipline, well, the two levels. It's more the repeatability, just the fact that the elite guys are just putting that out after five hours, whereas the under 23 races are only lasting three hours. So, and I think it's something that uh, Harry Sweeney talked about on our podcast, and I'm sure plenty other plenty of other pros would say the same. Is then numbers aren't really improving from 20, 21 years old onwards. They're not suddenly going from a 400 watt FTP to a 450 because they've trained really well for a year. It's being able to do that 400 watt effort on a long climb after four climbs before it. So that's where they're making that's where they still have the headroom in their training coming out of under 23s to be able to just increase that endurance and that fatigue resistance so that they can put out the 
generate the same output later into those longer races, which you don't have the longer races in the under-23s, so it's not as much of a requirement. Yeah, and then when you get someone like Luke, Luke Plapp, he is basically 10 years, maybe more, into his cycling career. Yeah. So he, he would potentially have the ability, well, he's shown he has the ability to do that. Yeah at the end of long races because of that background. Yeah, that's the thing that I think a lot of people fail to note and it's a really good point is we talk as coaches in training age rather than age. So Luke Platt is 10 years into his career, probably more. I think he started when he was 9 or 10, uh, just the the classic, yeah, getting on the the track bike at that age. Jimmy Whelan is four years older than Luke Platt, but he's six years old as a cyclist he's been riding for six years so i think obviously plappy wasn't doing 30 hour weeks when he's 15 years old so there's there's a limit to that in terms of juniors aren't going to have the same like a, a junior that's been a 20 year old that's been riding for 10 years is going to be different to a 30 year old that's going to be riding for 10 years but the training age is a big aspect of that and a big aspect of that fatigue resistance and he was able to show that at the end of the race, I'm sure his power output wouldn't have been dropping that much from what he was putting out at the start, whereas for so much of the peloton, they're out of the race after 10 laps, not because they're not capable of that power output. I'm sure they could do it, but it's not. they're not able to do it 10 times in a row. They may be able to do it six. And, yeah, for me, it's a 16-lap race. I think I was, yeah, somewhat comfortable for 12 of them, and then on the 13th one, I suddenly didn't have the output required to to stay with that group so uh yeah i'd like to think that with better preparation um and yeah with with a a few more years i can i will be able to do that and yeah i don't think it will be because my five minute power suddenly goes to 520 watts i think it will be the fact that i can do 480 watts 10 times in a row rather than six or or something like that yeah and and the other interesting thing for me now is where is Luke Plapp in his preparation for a, a season? This race is so early on. Did he, you know, like just throwing questions out there, like did he build towards this, have a mini break to get ready for it? Is he on his way up and he's got more inside him? Like it's a very interesting proposition now because he is a kind of unknown. He hasn't done a full year at the World Tour level. We don't know where Ineos will put him. But performance-wise, to see if he can maintain this at least through the first half of the season uh, will be interesting one to follow. Yeah, I I think so too. And I think a lot of people will be looking at that now. As you see with a lot of riders that get the big results in January, often people waiting for them to fail later in the season so they can go, haha, look at that. He's, he's no good now because he was too good in January. Yeah. So I like yeah. seeing people sort of um bust that myth by being good at multiple times of the year because from a physiology perspective there's no reason that you can't be good many times throughout the year and i'm sure jason will be able to touch on that like we this we're yet to see and we've talked about this plenty of times we're yet to see any reason that from a physiological perspective that you need to be taking big breaks throughout the season that's more from a mental perspective and that's obviously going to be a challenge for him because he hasn't been in that position either being away from home for a long a long period and having a season of races like being in Australia there's just not that much racing to deal with so there's a lot of factors that come into play but I'd say the mental side will be more of a challenge than the physical side 
Yeah, the caveat I think would be that is, I don't know if you get some kind of, for lack of a better term, like a compounding of fatigue during the season where you're just not able to recover from sometimes you know if you get if you come into the season too hard or something like that and just don't have a good you know dose recovery type um method uh in your training then yeah i could see well well you're gonna have to pull back just because you've basically accumulated fatigue over the time of the season but that's basically you know that break is happening more because maybe mismanagement or a hard training schedule or something like that it like it those that's preventable, I think. Yeah, and I think with Ineos's team of sports scientists and coaches, I think he'll be pretty well protected from that happening. You'd like to think, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, two things I uh, wanted to t- touch on just that happened in, that were a bit earlier in the conversation was one is again to kind of reemphasize like the TSS number that you have, and that like uh, third best overall power happened in very hot conditions so though that tss number was 400 and 421 it was yeah so it's artificially low because it's power based yeah so yeah so who knows how much higher that would have been had you um yeah i think the the hot conditions yet 34 degrees obviously core Core temperature is the important thing rather than the external temperature. Um, this is me telling the environmental physiologist what's important. But the, yeah. the I think from anecdotally, I was pretty good at uh, getting heaps of ice stockings throughout the race. So it's something you could see so many riders doing, which is it's not very um, high tech. It's literally just a old a stocking full of ice cubes and you just shove it down the back of your jersey and well ideally it's sitting at your neck where there's at the back of your neck where there's some blood vessels that are running past and it's obviously cooling the blood within those vessels and then spreading it around the body to keep you cooler and then obviously as cold a biddens as you could possibly get so that side of things i didn't feel at any point like i was overheating or that that would be detrimental i know to there's there's more some riders where it would be a lot more detrimental the heat and it's not something i've noticed particularly myself too much in that low low to mid 30s range that i'm noticing any power decrease so i still have my other thing but you actually opened up another door <laughs> to something that kind of happened this week to me um so in this case if i knew that a rider had a really hot day and i was looking at the numbers and i was like yeah, there's, this TSS should be a lot hot, higher because it's power-based TSS. And I knew I had a good grasp on their um, heart rate threshold. Then this is one of those instances where I would toggle over to heart rate TSS to yeah. get a... And you have to be careful because <laughs> neither of these things have really been validated. But you, you get a sense of what's better a lot of times. And that toggle switch in training peaks is really handy wko5 if you're listening that's why it's that's why it's handy what was your other one so the training age thing um one with jimmy uh it's hard to say yeah because he was a runner before that i did think about that as well yeah it's it's another one of those tough cutoffs in the endurance world where it's almost to me, it's like when you get a guy that's doing cross country skiing yeah. 
to supplement his his stuff in the um, off season. You're like, well, how much training stress score or training load do I calculate off of this? Does it really count for anything? And is it different because it's in the winter versus in three months away, four months away from the competitive season versus like, obviously you're not going to consider walking TSS in the middle of the season, thinking that that's really going to have a positive effect on the training load. It might have the, it might have a negative effect in terms of the, uh, the stress it causes acutely and the effect it has on the fatigue and that type of thing. But, um, but the other thing is like, we have used that, thrown that term training age around and I haven't like, maybe this is just my own lack of reading enough papers around like developing cyclists, but I haven't seen you guys. Is that more of a, that's more of a layman's term. Yeah. I, so I we have to be, I haven't seen it either. It's yeah. a handy term. It's a handy term. Um, and I would, I wouldn't stop throwing it around. Yeah. It's important to note that, that I've never seen a graph that says as training age increases, FTP does or performance does like there's there might be there's, right like yeah yeah I'm sh- I'm sure to something like probably acutely that there, there definitely would be like from zero to six months that I'm sure that that's a pretty pretty strong correlation but um yeah it is just it's something that we know and take keep keep track of but it's not something that I would use when comparing two riders to decide who's gonna win that race mm, yeah yeah um, it has been something that I've recorded in my research. I don't even think I considered it like training age. It was more like how long have you been yeah. training seriously? Yeah, in this in in the sense of how much how much do you know? Not just what your what your body is doing, but yeah, how much do you know? Where do we start from? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and it's not going to necessarily be this hard and fast thing where like six years is the same across all individuals it's just kind of a way to to kind of gauge things yep i just got a message from jason bartram well i think we're just about covered nationals and we've left a few doors open for if we get puppy on um which would be nice if he's listening and then uh jason did you want to move on now to what your afterthoughts are on the jason bartram episode that discussion with jason was actually a really good one. I really enjoyed it a lot and it stimulated a lot of thoughts for me. I enjoyed listening to it on my ride today as well. Yeah. I enjoyed listening to it 14,000 times while I was editing parts <laughs> of it. Uh, anyhow, so yeah, it was a really good uh, conversation with him. Now it makes me want to check my message from him and see what he said. Oh, he's just Hang saying on. he has I'm just getting a message from Luke Plath. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, uh, poor Cyrus. <laughs> yep. Anyways, um, no, he's just saying he hasn't had a chance to listen to the, his podcast yet. Anyways, so, yeah, it was a really good discussion with him, and there was quite a bit of stuff that I took out because we, we were just nerding out pretty hardcore and maybe we'll spin it off into a bonus episode. I'm not sure. Um, but I had some afterthoughts with it and thinking along the lines of first like FTP versus critical power. So I've had a kind of a mad dash to switch everything over with my practice over to critical power. 
Um, cause as that's happened, as, that's happened now. Yeah. For the most part, it's, it's, yeah, it's moving along. I mean, I'm oh, not God. like, I'm not exactly where I want to be. Like there's a few models that I want to look at yet, but I'm just kind of going with the quick and dirty approach with uh WKO five right now. And I'm trying to kind of figure out what durations of power testing I want to do with them that when I decide to move over into a different model, because I have looked at least at the model that's in some of the models that are in um, Golden Cheetah, and they seem kind of handy there. Um, And then just ideas around like, well, maybe I want to develop my own model or something like that. But so few thoughts about FTP versus critical power, because obviously if you're going to switch over to it, it's more testing for your athletes and and you're going to have to have a buy-in with them. I sent a message out to my athletes in um, our messenger group, uh, which is really handy, which I really like uh, to do. It builds a nice little community with my, with my athletes. And I was like, this is the year that we're going to switch over to critical power and then I let you're like, what's know. that? And you're like, listen to the episode. <laughs> yeah. And I said, and I said, uh, you're gonna have to listen to the episode, but I have been like t- taking each athlete as I, cause I try to meet with my athletes at least once a month, especially the ones that are uh, online and, and just having a conversation with them, letting them know that we are going to make that, uh, change over to critical power. And then you have to get the athlete buy-in, um, and some of the things that are kind of popping up with that is, well, what, why am I doing more testing, right? Because I can just do a 20-minute test and get FTP. So you have to kind of explain that there's these a- extra things that you can get with W prime. And you can, it's actually, critical power is actually a more accurate way to look at it. And that was actually when I was out riding with well, my athletes this morning, I was having a conversation with one who, um, Tony, who I was actually able to, listen to the podcast. And he's like, well, I'm still kind of like, I don't know what this all means. And so we just had a, more, a little bit more in-depth conversation of it while we were riding the intervals. And I've been trying really hard to come up with some kind of analogy that works that people can kind of think of that so they can understand what the difference is between FTP and critical power. FTP is defined as something you can hold for a long period of time, which becomes problematic because what's a long period of 60 time? minutes obviously and you know in the literature they say it's or uh, not literature but with a coggin and hunter allen and training peaks they just say it's a long period of time 45 minutes to 60 minutes and it's handy because you can just do one test uh to kind of figure that out but at the end of the day threshold is something else as well that's you have to also consider that threshold truly is a marker between the heavy exercise domain and the severe exercise domain. So that's what you're really looking for. And the description of critical power is that. Critical power is the point where those uh, domains are separate or change over. And then it's also, similarly, it would be the... the, um, amount of effort that you would be able to hold for a long period of time. And as Jason and I were talking about, like, yes, that some of the literature out there says that it's probably short and very variable, but again, that gets into like what model you're using, yada, yada, yada. So, so I had, had to like try to think of like some kind of analogy 
to kind of explain why these things are different. And so right now, my analogy is, is that imagine you have two uh, dartboards or, tar or targets, right? So traditional targets with the red dots in the center and the circles that go out. So for me, critical power is a normal dartboard and right in the middle has a red dot. And that red dot is the actual th anaerobic threshold, anaerobic in quotes. And critical power is basically right on it, right? The description of critical power fits that description. So, um, so if you, but if you look over at the other, the FTP dartboard, it's different. If you were going to look at the FTP dartboard, you would have a circle at the, that would be the same size for the anaerobic threshold, but it'd have like a dotted circle around it. Say, meaning it's in there, but you don't necessarily know where it is. And then around that is a large red uh, middle target dot. So if you were going to look at these two side by side, the critical power one would be like looking like a traditional bullseye. Uh, and if you looked at the FTP one, you would have a target with a much larger than normal bullseye. And in the center of it, you would have a normal bullseye that's kind of like ghostly. And now imagine like when you're doing testing and, you're, and your testing is throwing darts at this. So you can hit or miss that bullseye. Now, if I'm testing with critical power and I'm and using the models to uh, to use critical power, I have a good definition of what I'm looking for, and that is that anaerobic threshold. And so, if I hit that mark, I have a way to validate it because I can go out, take that, calculate the critical power out, have my athlete ride like two to two point five to five percent below it, and two point five to five percent above it and look at what goes on physiologically in those two areas. That's how I can double check that measure. Now, if I gonna do a FTP test, and I'm again, throwing darts at the FTP uh, dartboard or target, I hit, I could hit anywhere in that red, big red circle for FTP and just be like, okay, is that threshold the actual anaerobic threshold? You could hit it by accident, but how are you going to know, right? You'd have to go and do a second test to validate it. Um, so that's kind of how I'm looking at it right, right now. It's not It's more about like one has got the right idea, and at least it's trying for it. Yeah, it gets a little bit complicated when you're talking about there's lots of models out there, and it takes a little bit more testing, but at least one's shooting for the right idea. And you also get W prime out of it. And you can also do the W prime balance for whatever that's worth. Um, but it, it seems to me like there's, um, it just has the right concept attached to it as opposed to FTP. And it's kind of like, yeah, you may or may not hit the actual threshold. And so I think it's worth moving people more towards critical power. So they actually have that threshold. And this might be totally counterintuitive to what I was saying before, or where threshold, does threshold even matter? Well, if you can get an accurate threshold and it's not much more of a cost, well, maybe I'll go for the accurate one. So 
yeah, just food for thought for people that are out there. Um, and then I also get, then I got thinking like, okay, well, the, during that episode, I kept saying MFTP is just Training Peaks critical power. Well, actually, I don't know that because no one's validated it. So it got me thinking, well, the, if you look at just the name, it's a modeled FTP. But so, so is it that are they just modeling that dartboard that I was talking about before? Were they just modeling for this big dartboard that somewhere in there is the actual physiological threshold? Or are they rebranding critical power? I don't know, honestly. And until they do some validation studies and show their work, we don't know either. It might be close enough. Can't say you can't run races with it. But it's a little bit of a black box again, and I'm not a huge fan of those. So, yeah. I'm hoping I didn't mislead the listeners by saying, well, it's got a uh, power duration curve, therefore it's critical power, because if you're going to put a model in the mix, you really should be validating it to make sure it's actually what it is, because you could be, the model could be undershooting or overshooting, or if they're actually shooting for FTP, it's like, why are, so now we've talked about the limitations of models. So now we're trying to model a threshold that we know is limited. So those are some of my thoughts around that. It's a little bit of afterthought there. And then another thought I had with W prime is I was looking up some of the numbers around it and I just wanted to get an idea what's a high W prime, what's a mid W prime, what's a large W prime. Um, I don't know, Damien, do you have any thoughts or what you've heard around those measurements? Like what you think when you see those numbers, do you pay much attention to it? I don't have any reference points for numbers here. I've, so, I've never looked at it. Yeah, yeah. When I kind of, in my notes, when I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to set uh, this individual's critical power, uh, I'll copy down what their W prime is, what the critical power is. Um, or if I'm using, you know, obviously right now I'm using WKO5, so I'm like, I call it MFTP, but I'm calling it critical power because I would like to be able to just always use the term critical power from now on for the communications with my athletes. Um, but one thing that kind of stood out to me, I was like, you put, it's in kilojoules. Well, watts, we talk about watts, we talk about 400 watts, but what do we always talk about watts with? With weight, because it's an absolute measure, right? So I haven't come across anyone that's talked about W prime in terms of relative gram. Yeah. yeah so that's another interesting thing and it's is it is it in relative to total body mass or is it better to just be in relative to muscle mass or lower body mass uh muscle mass uh which is going to obviously be really complicated to get into that calculation but one of the things i think i have read around w prime is that you can have a larger w prime in a larger muscle that's not unheard of. And that kind of makes sense if you, with a little bit of understanding in muscle physiology. So that was kind of one of the things that, some of the things I've been thinking about, but getting back to the practical side of it is that, and kind of a humorous thing is, you know, one of my athletes who I calculated out his critical power and I sent it to him and I was like, you're using critical power now. 
And uh, he used FTP to describe something in his Strava. And I was like, wait, now if I move it over to critical power, maybe, you know, the culture is around FTP. Now my athletes have to explain to their mates, like what critical power is. And yeah, and they're like, yeah, so like, so what's your FTP? Well, my critical power is 350. Well, what's critical power? Uh, they could just be, it's, it's basically FTP, but better. <laughs> I could say that, but, um, so yeah, it is taking a little bit of that language away from the athlete. Cause if everyone's talking about FTP and now my athletes are talking about critical power and it also gets a little bit weird too, cause you're telling them to enter their critical power into the Garmin where it says enter your FTP. Yeah. So there's a lot of little language and things like that that could get confusing potentially for an athlete as you make this crossover so just be aware of that you know make sure you're having any conversations with your athletes if you are going to pursue that um i was looking at some of the modeling yesterday a lot of with coaching is being able to problem solve things and if you have your process down and and you see like let's say you start seeing big numbers for five by fives and you're like oh I know that now it's time to test because you've been looking at five by five numbers for like five years. Well, what happens when the numbers for your critical power model don't exactly match up and you're going into that? Well, it's going to take a little bit more time to do all the troubleshooting on it and come up with a solution and be able to make a proper decision. And I ran into a little bit of that yesterday with one of my athletes. I'm like, yeah, if I use this critical power, the that we're getting things just aren't meshing right with these other numbers but similar can happen using ftp as well so if you yeah, yeah, if you're modeling it, efforts based on ftp um for different rider types like if um yeah g- giving someone anaerobic efforts as a percentage of ftp then it's going to just fluctuate massively depending on what rider type they are mm-hmm, exactly but at least if you been using ftp for a few years you kind of understand its shortcomings and yeah and you can make decisions about it relatively quick quickly as opposed to you know if it's your first time handling an issue you might be sitting on it and mulling over for a few hours and that can be tricky if you've got other athletes uh weeks and data analyses to work on in the day so i would say if people are looking to cross over um Keep that in mind. It's going to take some time. It'll take some effort. You're going to run into some problems. It's not going to be the smoothest, smoothest, smoothest thing in the world. But I'm hoping there's going to be an advantage at the end of it. So um, I think. Well, I'm just waiting for you to finish the conversion and changeover, and then I'll consider after you give me all your hard work. Yeah. Well, I've been offering you. I offered you guys my talk test to try with your athletes. I still haven't gotten any. <laughs> response i thought it was for me to try and i thought oh that sounds no that sounds terrible i don't want to sit on the trainer (laughs) it's pretty easy to do it's like basically not much harder than you know a little bit of a strenuous workout it's just take some time to 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 do and some materials but I'm, i'm curious about your thoughts jason on a bit of a tangent here because just recently or just last night i saw that zwift potentially is offering something called zwift premium Mm which is going to uh, give you your FTP without a test. Plus they're going to do some type of adaptive 
training recommendations, daily recommendations similar to what Trainer Road do. If you're worried about a black box for one metric, talk about a complete system that is unknown, spitting out everything to an athlete. It just seems like there's a lot of issues potentially in a system like this. But is it good enough? Is it just the new training plan where it's good enough at a certain level just to move someone into structured training? Right. So here's here's my kind of thoughts on that is that the reason I have a problem with a black box is because I'm in between that black box and my athlete. So if I'm getting numbers spit out at me, well, all models are wrong, just some are useful. useful. So I need to know the limitations of that model. And, you know, I'm, you know, as Jason and I both are not real great with math, but like I can at least appreciate like how the critical power model works. I can at least understand how uh, training the training stress score is calculated, how normalized power is calculated. I mean, I've looked at those calculations to make sure that they at least kind of um, are a proxy for something physiological and useful and they're not too far off. So, um, so, but the thing is, is that's in a coach coaching scenario. That's where I'm, I would have those issues because I have to be able to interpret the data and make sure that what's, what could be wrong, where are the strengths, where are the weaknesses of this, of these values that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to someone who's not working with a coach, um, and then there's that kind of customer and app direct relationship there, then I don't, I don't see much of an issue with it. Then it's just capitalism. Yeah. Like if they don't, if they don't nail it, then the people aren't going to see the results, then they're not going to buy the app. I think cycling is borrowing from other fitness sort of apps in this regard in terms of you can get so many apps now that will basically be a PT in your phone, like personal trainer in your phone. uh, And then just you put in what you're doing and so it's basically like a cookie cutter training program but you're also inputting what you've done and if you've missed a session and then it will end like if you've gained mass or lost mass in certain areas and then it will will give you a certain workout for the next day or say oh you need a recovery day here and other other sort of pursuits like i'm sure running has similar i'm sure swimming has similar like i think cycling is just jumping on this train more now with the it's basically just a step up from the cookie cutter training program where you just go on someone's blog and go oh that's a good six-week program i'm gonna do that this has Mm -hmm. some form of personalization to it but as you said you're you're missing out the person in between that can take the data that the computer's spitting out which is definitely useful data like the these models uh yeah obviously some are more useful than others but there there are can be useful to us and especially if you have multiple models to use so relying solely on one which is what athletes are going to be led down the path of with these apps if you're subscribing to this app you're going to probably just use that 
um, and if that's spitting out, this is what to do, then yeah, that's that's all you're going to be doing. Whereas as a coach, especially if you are using Training Peaks combined with some other programs, combined with some some just personal experience and and obviously uh, utilizing any research that you've been made aware of or are keeping up with, then you've got all of these inputs coming into the output that you give to the athlete. Whereas with these apps, you've just got the the one input coming in, which is what the athletes put in to that model that you've generated, which we don't know how they've generated it a lot of the times because they haven't made that made it public. But the mm-hmm. as a coach, you're basically taking all of these inputs from a number of sources, plus being able to speak with the athlete, which I think you definitely can't underestimate the value of that, which these apps can't do. And then generating the output in this is the training that you should do tomorrow. I think that's the yeah. the value of the coach there, and this is probably leading into to Damien's topic for this week as well. I actually do have some thoughts on that. Um, you know, I think there is a space between the cookie cutter training plan and the coach for an app that would be able to kind of dynamically suggest training sessions to you and i've actually had a lot of thoughts on this and i've and i've actually talked with people who have wanted to develop to develop these and so it's got me thinking about them and so i'm not a programmer but i've i'm not i'm uh, not bad with excel so at least and i have a little tiny bit of programming so at least i understand the if then world and and i can kind of grasp how uh, maybe some of the um, AI would work and I can kind of get an idea of how some of the modeling would work with off of big data. Um, but I'm going to definitely admit my ignorance to it. And one of the things that I worry about that space is, is how are we going to differentiate between those apps? Because every single app is going to be coming out with the, basically the same marketing and trying to claim it's science-based whatever but i know of one app that started up by someone i know and they're like yeah we've got cycling now and now we're going to go into these other sports and i see some other apps that are out there that are like this is for these athletes yeah and to me i'm thinking man if i wanted to develop one for cycling i could see myself working on it for the next decade like looking at how look, I mean, look at how Training Peaks has developed over the last fifteen years or so, and that's how I would see an app that if I was going to develop an app in this space, like that's how I would look at it. So, the, um, the so uh, but maybe that's just me. But I'd be getting back to something that we were talking about earlier in this conversation is. Man, I really worry about like people who are building these things and are they just, they know math, they know programming, but they don't understand physiology. Um, but the thing is, is, is I, I think what's going to happen is that you could build the best physiologically based app that would be better than maybe most coaches out there. And the marketing could go nowhere with it because at the end, people are probably not going to be able to differentiate or the, the lay person. 
because this is for not for professional cyclists, right? Yeah. This is this is not for seasoned cyclists. This is for people that are just into it. So if it's if you get one of these apps that spins off of Peloton or Zwift or these other other established places, they does it does it matter how awesome it is? I mean, as long as it works for a majority of people uh, and is like has a little bit of a step up from that static training plan. But then on the other side, like maybe you know the amount of work and R&D that you'd have to put into maybe to make it one of these apps work really well might be outside of the investments that people would want to put into it. So I, I'm a little bit skeptical of what would be coming out. Are people going to, and like what it's going to be labeled as, this is AI. Yeah. Is it AI or is it just some if then statements that you're calling AI? Yeah, yeah I think it, I, would, I would just be echoing your statements because that that would be if it if it was something i was in interested in developing those would be the big fears i'd have is the marketing aspect once you get it there and as damien sort of pointed out if it's it looks nice and it's easy to use people might not necessarily care about the physiology side not being as good if it's near enough Mm -hmm. it's good enough if they're coming from doing one bunch ride every weekend to being prescribed for workouts no matter how well targeted they are to their goals they're still going to improve um yeah as long as yeah as long as there's some kind of some kind of physiology behind what it's spitting out then yeah they're, they're going to see improvements these kind of athletes that the app would be targeting for professionals it's yeah. obviously a different story but for professionals they're going to a coach anyway rather than an app so yeah. i think yeah in that regard you could build something amazing and the audience isn't really there because it's either it's it's the beginners or the the amateurs trying to get back into it that would be jumping on that kind of thing and uh anyone above that might be looking for an actual coach yeah but definitely the way that you framed it jason with something like a black box if it's between you and an athlete then it becomes a problem yeah yeah the everything else a platform if they're going direct to the athlete then that's fine but i do see that there is some space there to put some technology between a coach and an athlete that helps the coach make better decisions whether that is led by the coach so they can uh, input something unique to them under their um, philosophy uh you know we've kind of seen this with um alex and What's the product where it has the robot where you're feeding it answers to questions that you may get and then an athlete just has access to a robot. They can type in questions and get answers that you would normally give them, but it's just saving you time. So there might be something out there that helps coaches in some way use their own ideas and system, but it just makes certain processes processes of coaching faster, easier, just don't have to think about so much. Yep. So I, I think that there is space there definitely rather than just trying to adapt something that's going direct to an athlete from a company and then the coach is trying to jump in somewhere, trying to add some value. I don't know if that that is what the future looks like for me. It's just something that will fill a space to help uh, free up energy, time, thinking capacity so you can make better decisions, more decisions, Um help more athletes whatever whatever it is yeah well damien it does lead into what 
the question you've been pondering is what is the role of a coach in an athlete's success? Yeah, and I want to sort of take a step back and talk about how I got to this question and why it's been it's been rolling around in my head now for two months probably. Towards the end of November, on a rainy afternoon in Girona, I met the head coach of a world tour team and we had many different discussions about different things. Then we got to the topic of how someone as a coach could make their way into the world tour. And I floated the idea of if you have a successful athlete that is doing well at that level, does that open doors because the coach can follow them in because the coach has some role in their success, mm-hmm. which was quickly rebutted by a pretty radical theory for me at the time. And I'm, I'm coming across to it, but this, this idea that by default, a coach has no role in the success of an athlete because the alternative could have been that they could have done better under another coach. Right. And it wasn't at that moment that I was thinking about it, but later on I was just on, I was state that one more time, Damien. State it one more time so, um, so I can give it a thought. Okay. So the idea that by default, any success that an athlete has – may not be from the person that's coaching them. In fact, they may have done even better with another coach. For me, where it put my head is around ego, thinking that you actually are this unique snowflake of a coach that only you can impact a certain rider a certain way or whatever. Um, And it links to this other thing around that same time I was talking to another coach that said they were very lucky because early on in their career, they had an athlete that was an amazing responder to training. They did very well. In fact, they were so good that the postman could have trained them and then they would have mm-hmm. done really well. Yep. So, so it's, it's this ego thing of not to get ahead of yourself as a coach for me, thinking that I'm the difference between an athlete doing well and an athlete not in a big sense. Like a practical sense, yeah, you write the training, you do this, the athlete follows it, whatever. But it opened up this kind of space for me to really think about my place as a coach, how much ego is wrapped up in this. Because the other side of this is in early December, I got replaced by the team for the, the one elite rider that I do coach. Yeah. So I thought, okay. I have a role in this. I've brought a rider to a certain point. I can take them to another point or whatever. But then you, as a coach, for me, like I just, if I stepped over that line, I get to that point where, oh, I'm the one that's making the difference. I'm not. I'm, I'm really not because we will see now. And it is actually my belief that if you want to do the best thing by your athlete, there are times definitely that you need to step back. You need to let them go. No coach owns an athlete. So there's a lot of this kind of stuff wrapped up in this and it's just been stuck in my head. So I was interested to to talk to you two about it. Um, well, I know Cyrus just looks like he's chomping at the bit there. I'll get my words in here quick. But one way you could potentially look at it is what's the first job of a coach? Well, maybe it's similar to what, what the president's job is in terms of the economy. Step one, don't fuck it up. Yep. Which is kind of hard for some people. <laughs> um, but I think I think beyond beyond that, I got to drop an F bomb. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I think there's still I think there's definitely coaches that would work 
uh, better with people than others beyond just not effing them up. I would add that, yeah, don't mess with them and just care. Put them first. Be there for them, whatever that means, you know? Mm -hmm. My thing that goes on from Jason's thing, and I've thought about this a lot before as well, is it's kind of like with uh, lockdowns in that you can only see when they're not working in terms of like lockdowns during COVID to keep cases down. But you can see as a coach when you're doing badly, you can't actually see if you're coaching well. Obviously, if an athlete's improving, you thinking you're thinking, okay, I'm doing a good job of coaching. But as sort of the or- original argument from Damien sort of suggests, like the athlete could be improving with anyone. If an athlete's getting worse, then you know you're doing a bad job. Um, obviously, yeah, there's there's things that can happen like injuries, sickness, whatever going on, but. Um, if they're getting worse as a result of your training, then yeah, it's quite easy to tell that you're doing badly, whereas it's really difficult to tell if you're doing something well. I think where you can face difficulty in the short term as a coach is athletes getting worse in terms of output or numbers or performance acutely in order to be better down the track. And that's sometimes scary or daunting as a coach. I know it's uh, that was one of the things when I first came in that I found difficult was the first time athletes said, oh, how come I'm going really bad at the moment? And then I got really scared and thought, oh, I'm stuffing this athlete up like they're they're getting worse because of me. And then sure enough, that was part of a, a longer progression plan in which they were, were open. Uh, overreaching at that point in their program and then when they tapered off for their event they they hit a pb and i was all of a sudden felt like i was validated so i think the yeah it is as a coach um you can see a lot easier when you're doing badly and often yeah it's difficult to distinguish whether that's long term or short term rather than when you're doing well yeah i'll I'll actually uh add um, and actually, this is a thought I came across just yesterday. And because um, Simon Jones, nice little name drop there from a previous episode, he actually called me up or hit me up and asked if I wanted to go for a coffee and a ride. And obviously, me and him are going to talk shop, parted our ways. And, and I started thinking about like, you know, he's been doing this for a long time. Like, you know, what's the difference between his world, my world, you know? And then I was kind of thinking, I was like, well, coaching is, there's going to be similar things with coaching to being a CEO of a corporation or being a really good tradie or any of these other things. Um, Why would coaching be different than anything else anywhere where we praise and commend and hold in regard knowledge and wisdom? Why would why would coaching be any different? Why would knowledge and wisdom not affect your outcomes? And so um, that seems to fly in the face of just our of our basic humanity and and how humans develop. I mean, certainly, like it's a back and forth between the two. Like, yeah. There's some coaches that are probably pretty mediocre that got really lucky with good athletes and took them all the way to the top. Yeah. But 
that's it's silly to think that to me that knowledge and wisdom don't have a place in the coaching world. I really think that it's about ego. It's about knowing the place is always behind somebody else. Not necessarily that you're replaceable, but knowing that the athlete is always first. A coach can't come in and then expect to have a huge profile in a group of athletes that are the ones that are doing the work to get the results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you don't hear in, um, I think it's, it is, does seem cycling specific, but you hear of tennis players changing coaches or golfers changing coaches and it's a big deal. You don't hear, it just doesn't make the media cycling coaches. Like I, I would know a few World Tour pros coaches, but the, the vast majority, it's not discussed. Like it doesn't blow up, ah, oh, this rider just changed their coach this year or this rider's going well because because they're now with this coach. Like they're just not high profile in the cycling world whatsoever. But in, in, in at World Tour level, it seems like the coach's role is reduced. Yeah. Because the most important team person is probably uh, a DS. Yep. Yeah, and that's... that's um, in terms of talking like other team sports, that is the coach. So if you're talking about your football coach, that's effectively the director sportif, like, or your, yeah, like any other, like water polo, the coach is the person that's addressing the team before the game and at halftime. That's that's the director in but, a cycling but sense. Another interesting historical thing with cycling, it's probably only been 10, 12 years since coaches have really been a thing at World Tour. When before it was the doctor yeah. writing the programs and then the Swannies helping out and coaches weren't actually even a thing. So if we're talking only 10 years of a profession at that level, then the difference between how much respect or their position in a team would be very different. It has to be more than that, right? Because Carmichael, how much coaching did he have with Lance? Who was Lance's real coach? Uh Fair enough. Yeah, a no. doctor. Yeah. So it's, it is this thing of like maybe, yeah, the coach at that level just doesn't have the same power that they would in yeah. other sports that have a lot. And a lot history. less is out of – a lot more at World Tour level is out of the coach's control. Uh, we've discussed this plenty of times on the podcast. Once the racing season starts, it's a lot of race, do a tour, recover in between, do the travel days, which are often prescribed by even just the – the team, like by the DS, will say, "All right, everyone's going out for their two-hour ride before this." Like, there's there's so little control a coach actually has once a season starts, especially a race block. So that might be part of why they're much lower profile and why they might seem more replaceable at that level. And to kind of follow on from this, I've personally had to check my ego as well. So rider transitions to the team. They do the exact opposite that you would do and you're following along. They go to the first camp and get really, really good numbers. Yeah. So you're like, okay, I can own the parts that I took, taking the rider to a certain level. I can, in my head for the, you know, the last four weeks be like, oh, what are they doing? It doesn't work. It's sort of, you know, um, cognitive, what's the term? Dissonance. Dissonance. Yes. Cognitive dissonance. But then- they test and they do really, really well. Yeah, well, the other thing is they're still likely going to improve. You just won't know whether they would have improved more. <laughs> but that's, yeah, it's so difficult to measure the performance of a coach. It's so easy to measure the performance of an athlete. Look at their pro cycling stats. You can't measure the performance of a coach in the same way. That's a good point. There's a lot more factors. It's a lot 
grayer. But personally, I just had to check my ego a little bit as well. Come back to fundamentals. There's many paths to get to the same place. The role for me as a coach is caring, is doing everything I can while I can, and then working with what I have, the tension to, to try better, to work better, always work on my craft, that type of stuff, the things I can control. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that was a really big check for me. I was down for a couple of days just because I was just processing that I'm not the be all and end all of certain athletes that I've coached, which was a, is a good lesson to learn and something I will take into this year and beyond. The other important thing I always think is as soon as you uh, think that you're a perfect coach, you're going to be getting worse. (laughs) Um, Like you just have to be happy when you find out a mistake that you've made because it means that's an opportunity to improve. I think I'm lucky in the sense that I can try things on myself and where I it's so obvious to me when I stuff something up if I start going worse or I'm like okay that was like a terrible idea like riding 45 days in a row 100k is exactly the same <laughs> loop like those kind of things um but the yeah then it's like okay well now now I can improve on that whereas if you are talking to a coach that thinks that they are the perfect coach or the best coach then that should be a red flag straight away because then there's no chance of them improving yeah 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 and that's it so to wrap up here subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and if you like the episode please share it with one person who you think would find it valuable thanks <laughs>